All right, let's pray. Father, we love you, and um, I'm glad that you accept me in spite of my inability to spell words. And um, yeah, and Lord, the, our subject, our subjects tonight, Lord, they are important, seeing that all of Scripture comes to us by way of prophecy and has come to us by a multitude of prophets. And we want to understand, Lord. So I pray that you would teach us tonight, that you would use what we learn to encourage us, to also, Lord, equip us. And um, yeah, so Lord, thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Yeah, so I had intended to do the introduction to Isaiah tonight, but seeing that we're transitioning from the poetic books to the prophetic books, to the major prophets initially, I thought it might be a good idea to talk about prophets and prophecy, okay? And um, so we're going to do that tonight, and the next week we'll get into the introduction specifically to um, the prophet Isaiah and his book. So what we had done was, of course, we have recently finished the 25th Psalm, and I decided in order to break up the Psalms uh, so that we don't get too much of a sense of redundancy, was then I'll teach through Isaiah, but I'm going to teach it um, more of a, an in-depth survey. We'll teach some entire chapters, but then other chapters we'll go through, and maybe I'll break some records tonight and teach like five chapters in a night. I'll do a, I'll pull a Chuck Smith on you guys. And, um, but then after Isaiah, then we'll come back and we'll go to uh, Psalm 50, then we'll do Jeremiah. We'll just do that. And by the time we get to the minor prophets, we'll be done with Psalms, and maybe we'll work through the Proverbs like that as well. If you have a short attention span, you'll love Proverbs, okay? So it's just pithy one-liners and, um, yeah, good one-liners, but that's pretty much what they are. Yeah, so tonight what I'd like to do in, in order to discuss this is I'd like to ask and answer four questions. So what is a prophet? Uh, what is the test of a prophet? Are there prophets today? And what is prophecy? How's that sound? All right. So let's talk about what is a prophet. Uh, maybe a, a better question is to ask, what is a true prophet? But scripture has both in there. In, ge in a general sense, a prophet is someone who speaks for God, who passes God's message onto people. And we don't want to say always God's people because um, Jonah certainly did not pass uh, God's message onto God's people. They became God's people, but initially they were not. And prophets have been sent to pagans in the past. Uh, Paul himself was a prophet, right? And he took the gospel message to a pagan world. And uh, he spent a lot of time making uh, pagans into Christians. It's kind of a nice job, isn't it? Yeah. I'll tell you what, the Roman Empire uh, came to appreciate it after about 300 years as they transformed uh, the, the entire culture. So... Yeah, so in the scriptures, there are true prophets, there are false prophets. A true prophet is someone who hears directly from God himself, and then, of course, passes that message on to people. Uh, we could say that he is God's mouth mouthpiece. A false prophet, then, is someone who thinks that they are the mouthpiece of God. Uh, now, there is an interesting exception in the scriptures. A false prophet who heard directly from God and spoke as the mouthpiece of God. Who's that guy? Balaam. Yeah, what a strange story 
that is. He was a false prophet. He was hired by uh, Balak, who was the king of Moab, to come and curse the children of Israel as they were down in the plain there. But every time he attempted to curse Israel, he ended up doing what? Blessing Israel. Of course, that was by divine intervention. So he couldn't prophesy uh, against Israel. So what he did was he ended up later giving counsel to Balak on how to make the children of Israel stumble, which they did. And, uh, and then if you keep reading on in Numbers, um, God dealt with Balaam for that. Yeah. So ordinarily, a false prophet is someone who claims to be the mouthpiece of God, the God of the Bible, but is not, or they believe they're the mouthpiece of a false god. And they may be the mouthpiece of a false god. Now, we, we actually believe in false gods, right? Not in the sense of trusting them, but we believe that they exist in the form of Satan, demons, and so forth. And somebody actually is the prophet of Satan. We'll talk about him a little bit later. Now, when it comes to defining prophets and prophecy, the Hebrew word is of no use to us. Isn't that nice? Nobody knows the etymology of the Hebrew word for the prophet. Uh, so what we have to do, instead of looking at the definition of the word, we have to look at how the scriptures define what a prophet is. Does that make sense? If not, that's too bad. I don't know how to fix that problem for you. So the earliest description of a prophet, well, first of all, the first person called a prophet was Abraham. But we don't have any prophecies from Abraham, do we? Uh, Abimelech, God tells Abimelech, Abraham is a prophet and he'll pray for you. So the, sense, the only sense that we get from that is a prophet who is someone who was close to God and could pray for someone. Uh, but that's typically not what we think of when we think of uh, prophecy or a prophet. So instead, what we have is a very early description. It's found in Exodus 4, and it's the story of where God is actually calling Moses to be his prophet. But you know the story. Moses begins to complain and make a million excuses about how he can't speak, right? Now, we don't know if he is tongue-tied, if he's not eloquent, uh, if he just doesn't do well in front of other people, um, whatever. God gets really mad, and, and you think when you're reading the narrative that God isn't going to stand for it, and Moses is going to have to do it. But God actually, I don't know, does he give in? I don't know how to interpret the text. Uh, so let's just read the text. How's that? God says, now you shall speak to him, that is to Aaron, because uh, God inquires about Aaron. And says Aaron can speak. And uh, so God gives this sort of concession. He says, now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. But notice, what's Moses then? He's the mediator. He's actually the mouthpiece who then mediates the message of God to Aaron. And he says, and I'll be with your mouth and with his mouth. And I'll teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people. And he himself shall be as a mouth for you. And you shall be to him as God. So, in other words, because it, it's a bit comical, isn't it, how the whole thing uh, goes down. So God chooses Moses to hear directly from him, and then he is to be the mouthpiece of God, but only to Aaron. And then Aaron takes the word of God from Moses, and then he communicates it to the people of Israel. What an interesting thing. Moses, well, God to Moses, Moses to Aaron. And then from Aaron to the people. It's so funny. And, you know, as you go through the, the wilderness wandering, you kind of get the impression that Moses 
gets so frustrated with Aaron, he's like, I'll just do it already, okay? And because there's some of those passages where there can't be Moses speaking to Aaron and Aaron to the people. And so Moses is like, I'll just, I'll just do what God originally said. So perhaps God just knew eventually that Moses would, would get it or whatever. So the point is, a prophet was to hear directly from God, and then he was to give God's message to the people. So a prophet is certainly God's spokes. And the situation with Moses and Aaron turns about to be a total exception, and it's never repeated again in the scriptures. It's just a very interesting way to begin. Uh, King David compliments this definition when he says this. He says, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. So when, when David sang the Psalms, as the context of that passage indicates, he fell under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was speaking through David or by David. And, and that's the interesting thing. Part, part of this is it's the divine word of God mingled with the personality and experience of the human. So the Psalms is a record. It's, it's David's experience. But the Holy Spirit is ensuring that what David shares is true. It's inspired of God. So David was the Holy Spirit's mouthpiece. Jesus says something similar about this. He says, for David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Peter adds to this. He says, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Remember, they're trying to find, uh, trying to replace Judas, gearing up for that. And, and the, the apostles demonstrate that this was predicted by the David, who is a prophet. He's not just, wasn't just a king, but he was a prophet. But you see the language there, the definition for prophet, that the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David. So speaking to the world, using by way of or the instrumental cause, David's, his mouth. Again, the same kind of definition. Paul says, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, to the people. So Isaiah was also the Holy Spirit's mouthpiece. Finally, Peter gives this interesting comment, one you're probably very familiar with. He says, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy never came by the will of man. That is what's, we'll get into the definition of prophecy, but we could say the message of God never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So prophecy uh, never, ever has come by uh, man's will. It hasn't come by his genius or his creativity. Man is never the source of true prophecy. When he truly prophesies, it is because the Holy Spirit has willed to speak his message by a, his appointment, somebody he selects. And Peter says that a prophet is moved by the Holy Spirit. That is uh, literally the Holy, the, not the Holy Spirit, but the prophet is carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then he... Uh, enables the person to speak for God as a mouthpiece. All right, how do we test a prophet? Because there's some yahoos out there, isn't there? I'll tell you what, through the whole COVID pandemic, well, through the, uh, the election season, and especially from the new apostolic Reformation prophets, false prophets, by the way, 
Um, they're all wrong so far. Uh, and then through the pandemic, you had just all of these wild guys on YouTube. And I'll tell you, um, there's something. So there are a few places in the scriptures that instruct us on how to test a prophet. I think the best is probably Deuteronomy 13. God speaks to Israel thus. He says, now listen carefully to the language. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign of the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. Now, now first, I don't want you to miss what is initially said about this prophet. Moses warns the children of Israel that if the prophet's sign or wonder comes to pass, what is Moses assuming? He's assuming that false prophets can perform miracles. Signs and wonders are miracles, okay? Yeah. And he does it for a good reason. I mean, you remember when he was in Egypt that some of Pharaoh's magicians were performing miracles. Now, by the end, they couldn't perform the level of miracle, we might say, that, that God was performing through Moses. But nonetheless, they were performing genuine miracles. Well, Jesus spoke about false Christs and false prophets. He said, for false Christs and prophets will arise and they will show. He doesn't say bogus signs. He says great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now that statement means that the elect cannot be deceived. Some people say it's, well, the elect can be, no. The, the statement uh, is even more emphatic in the Greek. The elect could not. But if it were possible, so he's saying that anybody that's not the elect, they're done. Okay. Paul adds to this, he says, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Now, many commentators will say, well, lying wonders is false miracles. Then what the heck is all power? What is all power? He's going to come with all power, signs, and lying wonders? No, he's talking about real miracles. Now, the point of the miracles is to deceive. The point of the miracles is to draw away. It's smokescreen for something dangerous. Okay? So when Moses, Jesus, and Paul say that false prophets, false Christ can perform miracles, signs, and wonders. Mind you, those are the three things that the Gospels say that Jesus did. Signs, wonders, miracles. We should believe it. And because of the way that Paul and Jesus state it, we should be expecting it. We should be expecting it. And if it is to be expected, we need to know how to test it, right? Yeah. So then what? How do we determine a false prophet from a true prophet? Which one should we give ear to? Well, it doesn't matter what they can do. That's what we need to get out of our minds because people are most impressed by what people can do. But Moses, Jesus, and Paul would say it doesn't matter what they can do. It only matters what they say. It only matters what they teach. Look again at Deuteronomy 13. If there rises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he gives you a sign or a wonder and the signs of the wonder come to pass of which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. So the prophet who works miracles but teaches heresy, immorality, or idolatry, 
is a false prophet. A false prophet. Yeah. It always comes back to what is taught. Isaiah says, to the law and the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, there is no light in them. If they do not concur, if they do not affirm God's word, there is zero light in them. They are a false prophet. Okay? False prophet. Isaiah 8.20. But what was done with a false prophet in the Old Testament? But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken. Not because he's performed miracles, but because he's spoken in order to turn away from the Lord your God. Get it? He has spoken. It's all about what they say. Yeah. So these false prophets, they are the prophets of someone. They're a mouthpiece for someone. Okay? Trying to lead God's people astray. You know, I've, I've always wondered if, if the law of Moses, at least verse 5 of Deuteronomy 13, if that was actually enforced today, there'd be a lot of dead people. Or there would be a lot of cautious people that would think twice before they just spoke whatever they wanted or um, spoken a way to lead people astray. Yeah. YouTube would have a lot of vacancies. My goodness. In 2 Thessalonians, just as a further warning, because some people would say, well, that's Old Testament. What, it's, what about the New Testament? Well, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.9 that those who fall victim to false prophets are those who do not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So Paul is saying that the, the issue of, of, of prophets and prophecy is so serious that people's salvation depends upon it. Okay? They did not receive the love of the truth, which is the word of God, okay? so that they might be saved. So just like Moses, Paul brings it back to the issue of truth versus error. So again, we identify a false prophet, not by what he does or the miracles he performs, but all on what he teaches. Does he teach truth or does he teach error? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting, the language that Jesus and Paul use, because the world, I mean, you look at the condition of the world right now, and, you know, Europe as a, a post-Reformation society, um, they are, they're, you know, they, they used to say that Europe was 20 to 40 years ahead of us in regard to, um, you know, the slippery slope of immorality, um, you know, the unchurched, the embracing of all this moral insanity. Um, so they're a post-Reformation. They've fallen before us. We're falling. America's becoming more and more anti-Christian. You know, if you're a, a white male Christian, you're the devil in America. Uh, that's been confirmed in Canada already. Um, the world does not love the truth. And when the lawless one comes, they're going to fall all over themselves when he appears. They will. He will be their long-awaited hero, showing them signs and wonders to draw, to impress. He's going to affirm all of their carnal desires. He'll teach them the worst of heresy. He's going to lead them further and further away from God, as Peter says, into destruction. And Paul even affirms that you know, further on in the text. It's crazy. In regard to prophecy, Paul says, uh, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test all things and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, as a reaction, I believe, to the wild kind of insanity that goes on in the church, uh, some people would say, well, just none of it. Just, let's just scrap it all. But I don't find that counsel from Paul. He says, don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecies, but instead 
be vigilant, be diligent, and test everything. Okay? Be watchful, be mindful. I gave, God says, I gave you my word. I've given you the directions, as it were, to identify, to, to distinguish between them. And we should do that. There's, there's no instruction anywhere in the scriptures to stop testing prophets and prophecy, which implies that prophets and prophecy never cease in this world. And that leads us to our next question. Are there prophets today? That is not a controversy at all in the church today. Yeah. Well, there are certainly going to be false prophets, according to Jesus and Paul. But will there be true prophets? Well, I guess that would depend what you mean or understand by prophet. Okay? In the scriptures, you might say that there's prophets, capital P, and there's prophets, lowercase p. Okay? In the Old Testament, some prophets functioned as an official and were regarded as the prophet, the prophet, like Moses and Samuel. I like when Samuel comes to town, when you read about that in 1 Samuel. What did the people do? They trembled. And like, what, what, are, you, what are you doing here? I mean, what, what happened? There was this honor for the prophet because he represented God in both his presence and his word. He was an official dude, okay? Yeah. But then there's others who were regarded as a prophet, who it appears that they simply exercised a gift, perhaps. They prophesied. One appears to fulfill an authoritative office among God's people. The other does not, okay? For example, uh, two men, uh, Eldad and Medad, um, they only get mentioned once in Scripture. They weren't that big of a deal, but they did prophesy, uh, they were prophesying in the camp of Israel when the Holy Spirit came upon them, Numbers eleven twenty six. But they were never recognized as prophets. But Moses was both the prophet, and it was by his word that Israel was led. Okay, yeah. In the New Testament, because some people say, "Well, that's Old Testament. What about the New Testament?" Um, but then you have hyper dispensationalists will say that doesn't matter. That's only at this time until now, this certain period. Well, I think that's ridiculous. In the New Testament, Agabus, how many guys remember Agabus? He's mentioned twice in the New Testament. He's, I think, as far as named prophets in the New Testament, he's the most famous, but apparently he's infamous. Okay, there were many others. Uh, Agabus prophesied in Acts chapter 11. He prophesied a famine. And then he prophesied in Acts 21 about Paul when he was returning to Jerusalem last time that he would be bound Remember, you know, and some of the prophets are weird. I mean, they did some weird stuff. But he takes Paul's belt off and then ties himself up with it. And he says, whoever the owner of this belt is, he says, this same thing is going to happen to him when he goes to Jerusalem. And all the normal people are saying, well, why didn't you just say that? <laughs> why do you got to take the man's belt? And, but prophets love pictures. Yeah. But Agabus doesn't seem to be in any, like, official position of authority. He was called a prophet, but it, all we see him doing is prophesying about the future. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul suggests that there's both the gift of prophecy and the office of prophet, two different things. Three times, Paul tells all believers that they should desire spiritual gifts, but mostly that they would prophesy. Now, I don't think that he means that, he, that we should all desire to have the office of prophet, but that we would all speak for God. Peter says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. So here he presents prophecy as a gift, but then also recognizes the office, especially in Ephesians 
chapter 4, verse 11, that God or Christ has given some to be apostles and prophets, evangelists, and pastor teacher. Those are offices, okay? Positions of authority in the church. Yeah. So this means that those with the gift of prophecy may not have the office of prophet, but those having the office of prophet, they both prophesy and they have that authoritative role within the church. A similar distinction is made between pastors who uh, Paul says are gifted for the ministry, Ephesians 4.11, and those who only have the gift of teaching but are not pastors, Romans chapter 12, verse 7. So every pastor is a teacher, but not every teacher is a pastor. Everyone who prophesies is not necessarily a prophet, but a prophet, most certainly, that has the office prophesies. You understand? If you don't, you'll have to talk to me after service, because that's all I have to say about that. Yeah, both are found in both the Old Testament and especially the New Testament. Yeah. To the Ephesians, Paul said, he says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, speaking to the Gentiles, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So here we see a very distinct role of divine authority with the prophets. It was the role of the apostles and prophets to build the foundation of the church. They, now, and, and I didn't have time to look over this all in the New Testament, but they were responsible for the church, its, its inception, its documents, its doctrine, its practice, its polity. Whatever they said as the spokesman of God for the church had final authority. What you're holding in your hands right now, from Matthew to Revelation, is the work of the apostles and prophets. It is divinely inspired word of God, final authority. That is not just an office, that's authority, okay, authority. So back to our question, are there prophets today? Well, the purpose and role of the prophetic office was fulfilled once the church was established and her doctrine was in place. Not everybody agrees with me on that position. What do you think would happen if we had the office of prophet or apostle today? I mean, what would be the implications of such a thing? It would mean that if he visited our church, he could say from the pulpit, thus says the Lord, and he could provide us with new divine revelation. Do I believe the office of prophet exists today? I do not. There's no way. And everybody today that believes themselves to have the office of prophet is a heretic. You listen to their stuff. Not only do they give false prophecies, which a true prophet can't give, but the garbage that they teach is so contradictory to the scriptures that it should be evident to us who read this, like Deuteronomy 13, that this is counterfeit. This is bogus. Okay? Um, all of those things, the, the, the church has been foundation has been laid. We have our documents, the New Testament, okay? We have our doctrine, the faith, okay? It was once delivered to the saints, Jude says. We have our proper practice given to us. We have our polity. By that, I mean government. Yeah, that's all in place. It's been fulfilled. That office has been fulfilled. So I would say that the, the prophetic office has ceased because we don't need it. Okay? But I am convinced that the prophetic gift continues in at least two ways, Okay, uh, so it's funny, I would say that I'm a cessationist partially in regard to the office, but I'm a continuationist in regard to the gift. I know that rubs some people raw. Um, 
I don't really care. The, the debate is between what is called the cessationist who believes that all of the, uh, the sign gifts especially are past, they're done, and there's this arbitrary date known as 70 AD that is magical. Uh, I'm not sure how they arrive at that date exactly. Then there's the, the, the partial cessationist who believes that the ministry gifts are still intact, but the sign gifts are gone. And then there's the full continuationist that says all of the gifts are still available today. And uh, so I'm a partial continuationist. And I don't even know if that's an official position, but I'm no prophet. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I said that I, I'm convinced from the scriptures that the prophetic gift continues in at least two ways. First, in the way of Agabus. Uh, by the Holy Spirit, Agabus became aware of future events uh, by which the church and Paul uh, were able to make preparations. They could be informed. Uh, but we never find Agabus, as we said, establishing doctrine for the church in any kind of leadership role. He merely prophesied. I believe that continues today under certain circumstances. Okay, uh, I'm not going to get into all of that, but I do have a strong position on it. But there's another exercise of prophecy today that I believe is actually the more normal way of prophesying more normal way. Uh, these prophets share God's message with God's people, but they do not receive their message directly from the Lord. They are God's mouthpiece, but the Holy Spirit does not speak by their mouths, we would say, in the same way that he spoke by Moses's, or David's, or Isaiah, or Elijah. These prophets don't share God's message by what God has spoken directly to them, but by what he has written to them in his word. This is the role of the local pastor, okay? When he interprets and teaches the word accurately and applies it properly, I believe this is the normal exercise of prophecy, okay? Uh, pastor, I really respect uh, John Piper. Before he goes to the pulpit, he prays, God, that I might prophesy. I love that prayer, okay? As a pastor, I do not have the authority to write scripture. Or I don't have the authority to say, thus says the Lord, unless I'm reading the text of scripture. But I do have the responsibility to exposit the word of God to the people of God. Okay? And uh, if it reaches the heart of his people, if it provides uh, exhortation, conviction, comfort, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, it was delivered prophetically. prophetically. Okay? That is the idea of prophecy spoken. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, and 24 through 25. So there's every reason to believe, uh, from my understanding of the scriptures, that the office of prophet no longer exists following the establishment of the church and her doctrine, but there are good biblical reasons to believe that the gift of prophecy continues for the edification of the church. I love the way that Peter says this. I mentioned it earlier. He says that if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Well, we, people read that, the cessationist reads that and says, well, those things are past. The problem is, is that the context of that language is, begins this way. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand, therefore. And he starts to give instructions of what should be happen, happening in the eschaton, the last days. And he says, he mentions, he couches all of the gifts together because the gifts are... Uh, we can separate them as the serving gifts and the speaking gifts. And he says, if any man serve, let him serve with the ability that God has given him because the days are coming to a close. 
And if any man speak, let him speak as the oracle of God, so that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. So I don't care what anybody thinks today. Peter said, the end of all things is at hand. So he believed that the gifts should go all the way to the end. But they should be used in their proper biblical ways. Amen. I just threw it out there. First Peter 4. Yeah. So if you're a cessationist, I'd love to talk to you after service and, and correct your theology. Uh, but, you know, I think that what happens is too often we, we see the baloney that is in the world. The craziness. The garbage. Um, I've read my New Testament a few times. I don't see any of that in there. The gifts are meant to edify, to build up, and if they do not glorify God, there is something wrong with it. And there's probably something wrong with the person doing it. Okay. So, if you have questions, I'd love to talk to you about it. I have a strong position. If you disagree with me, I can still be friends with you. Um, I hope you can still be friends with me. And no, I don't speak in tongues. Everybody asks me all the time. I don't. So, but I wish I could speak a foreign language for sure. So Spanish, especially because I always feel so bad in, in the grocery line that I can't share the gospel to all these Mexicans that are in line because I want to go over to their house for dinner because I see everything they're buying. And uh, <laughs> Anyway, now, receiving future foreknowledge is not the regular exercise of prophecy, but teaching the scripture is, okay? So what is prophecy? Now, prophecy is essentially information from God directly, Okay? But it comes in different forms. There's foretelling and there's forthtelling. Foretelling, of course, regards the future foretelling, okay? Revelation of God's will, direction, counsel. I'm sorry, foretelling is the future. Forthtelling has to do with God's will, his direction, his rebuke, his judgment, okay? His counsel, uh, even uh, events that would otherwise be unknown. Now, typically, uh, when the issue of prophecy comes up, uh, when people think of prophecy, they think of a message regarding future events, foreknowledge. But you have to understand, that's only one form of prophecy and not the common form. Uh, understand all scripture, every word in the Bible is prophecy. Prophecy. Every word in your Bible is the product of prophecy. Some regards the future, uh, some regards the past, and past events that otherwise could not be known. I mean, think of Moses. Was he there for the creation? No, but it was revealed to him, something of the past. So that's interesting. How many guys think of prophecy being something in the past? It is. It is. Another question for you. How in the world did Moses know what Balaam was saying when Balaam was on the mountain and they were in the valley? Because God told him. He says, there's a clown on the mountain who wants to curse you guys, but I'm not going to let him. Here's what he said. Okay? Yeah. Some of it concerned only the present audience, and yet other portions apply to all time. When we look at the Torah, for example, the first five books of the Bible, uh, there's only actually a few references to the future, but there's volumes and volumes of information regarding God's will for Israel. In every regard, to, in order to establish this theocracy, God had to tell them all of the laws, you know, the moral laws, the ceremonial, the, the civil the medical, agricultural, marital, famil, family, and so forth. The Torah is primarily just instruction. But when we come to, of course, the prophetic books like Isaiah to Malachi, most of it regards future events. Some of it near future, some of it distant future. 
the four Gospels. Uh, the epistles frequently have messages regarding the future, like Matthew chapter 24. But most of it is just information for God's people, isn't it? How to live. It's moral teaching. It's instruction. But when we get to Revelation, at least chapter 6 through 22, the prophecy looks forward to the future world just before Christ returns. So prophecy comes in all kinds of different forms. But the most common form in the scriptures is actually revelation regarding God's will, his counsel, his instruction for his people. Oftentimes it's rebuke, but that's instruction, isn't it? What you did was wrong. Then he brings correction. This is what you should do. This is the way, walk in it. Yeah. Now, when we get into Isaiah, uh, Isaiah's book is broken up into uh, even different kinds of prophecy. Starts out uh, in the prophetic uh, rebuke of Israel. Uh, she's calls her a, uh, an unfaithful wife and other things and talks about her sins, brings the rebuke. But then by the time we get toward the end of the book, it's about redemption. Some of it near and some of it far. Okay. So that's what I have for you for prophets and prophecy. Um, if you have any other questions, we can talk after service. Next week will be the intro to Isaiah. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Father, we thank you that... Um, holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit. And um, that all of your word, as Paul says, is theopanusto. It's the very breath of God. And that it's profitable to us, Lord, as Paul says, that we might be fully equipped, complete, ready for every good work. So Lord, I pray that it would be to the prophetic word that we would give our attention. Help us not just to believe it, but to rely upon it and to use it for every context. Lord of living, granting it final authority on everything it addresses, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.